the mission is going to take care of itself. You know, taking care of the people, that's the foundation of any success for any organization. Yeah, you want to, you know, focus on the money aspect of it. But trust me, if you don't take care of the people, you, you're going to suffer. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. My name is J.R. Flatter, and I'm here with my co-host, Lucas. Hey, Lucas, say hi to everybody. Hey. And we are joined by our special guest today, our distinguished guest, Rob Joseph. Just to remind everybody, our and Rob will remind you, our audience is leaders who are competing and succeeding in the 21st century and building a coaching culture in order to do that. So it could be large business, small business, nonprofit, military, government, whatever. They're trying to figure out how to succeed in the 21st century. So with that, I'll pass the torch to you and let you introduce yourself and, and brag about yourself a little bit because you're doing great stuff. Hey, JR Lucas, thank you for the opportunity. I'm actually made it to JR Flatter's podcast, so I'm privileged and honored. So with that being said, I am Rob Joseph. My first name is really Robinson. So I usually say, hey, I'm Rob Joseph because I really throw people off when I say Robinson as a first name. So with that, I've, I've retired out of the Air Force after 30 short years of service. Um, I'm the co-founder. Me and my wife are the co-founders of RLK Team Solutions, which is an affiliate of Courageous Leadership Alliance. Some of you may know it. That's Todd's conglomerate of small businesses. So I'm one of his primary facilitators in, in, in Endeavor. You know, so after doing 30 years in the Air Force, I've traveled around all over the United States, Europe. Had the privilege of actually speaking at you know at eight different African nations because of my unconventional leadership style. I believe in a people first leadership approach, you know. So I'm not bringing that the militaristic style of you know leadership. So which is refreshing, especially for the DoD audience. So um, besides that, that's I'm happy to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation today. All right, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile. You're a resistance building. RBLP, that's in your portfolio. That's in my portfolio. I'm a, I'm a certified RBLP instructor. I work with Todd Todd Simmons and Courageous Leadership. You know, I'm passionate about the resilience building aspect of leadership. I believe it's a, it's not talked often enough. It's kind of a, unfortunately when we're talking about resilience, it's usually a reactive approach to to that style of leadership. So mm. using the RBLP concept is more of a proactive establishing a culture, an organization, a climate. Where resilience is, you know, is a foundational key to um, to support an individual, you know, for the development of the organization. So I'm proud to be a proud facilitator in that aspect. Yeah. So talk to us about that the resiliency in the 21st century and how it might be different than the 20th century leadership. You know, the thing about resiliency in the 21st century, you know, now that most of our most of our workforce is diverse, you know, with multi generational. So the the younger generation, they're not. They're, I, I believe, you know, the, the fact that they, you know, they communicate via text, they communicate via email or electronically. That interpersonal relationship is not that is not the foundational strength for them. So when they come into an organization 
and they, you know, they have, they have an issues or they, you know, they talking to the JR flatter, that communication kind of falls short, you know, so finding a way for the older generation to coordinate with the younger generation is, is, is key in making sure you're, you have a resilient organization. So given, given both parties, you know, some tools to help, you know, foster that cohesion is, is critical. You know, so that's why that's why I enjoy teaching RBLP to um, not only to corporate, but to private organizations and even to um, individuals as well. So looking at that um, experience with, you know, working with international leaders, is there anything unique about that 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 might like make it more challenging for an international person to join a culture or, or an organization or? Lucas, great question. You know, as as I travel around, you know, Europe and Africa, teaching um military culture or you know leadership culture to different organizations and militaries all throughout the world, it's it's a foundational strength of the actual culture of the nation that impacts the the way the corporation, the way the team, the way that the military is being led. So in some in some countries, it's a it's a tribal structure, a hierarchical structure. So for me being um, an enlisted person for 30 years, going to a country and saying, hey, an enlisted person could lead individuals, an enlisted person, you know, who's not, who's not, you know, a college graduate could lead somebody who is a college grad. That is a shift in a, in a, in a dynamics, in a culture. So um, it was my, it was my goal to have them understand that anybody could lead from the bottom up can lead, you know, so instead of being a class, you know, focused leadership style that some countries actually have. So I'm looking here at your uh, retirement ceremony. I don't know if it's actual ceremony. We, did you and your wife retire simultaneously? JR, we actually retired the same exact day. I That's did 30, crazy. Yeah, I did 30 years. She did 22 years. So uh, we retired the same exact day. So it was, it was a bit of a challenge for us, you know. Mm-hmm. Now what? What do we do now? Now mm-hmm. that I have to see her every day, I don't have the escape of, <laughs> you know, going to the office. It was interesting, you know, so I've been sleeping with one eye open, you know, keeping <laughs> just in case that pillow comes over my head ever so gently, you know, so, but it's been great. You know, after we retired, that's when we, we jumped right into the pandemic. So we were, we were forced to, to re, you know, rebuild our relationship, work together. And now that we actually are working together on, in the private sector, it's been fun. It's been fun. It takes, it takes, it's not easy, but it's been fun. Yeah. Um, you might not know it, but. I've been married to a Puerto Rican for 38 years. Lucas's mother is a Puerto Rican as well. So, yeah. uh, we understand that. <laughs> we understand that. Cross-ethnic yes. uh, family life. Yes. Which, yes. Uh, you know, going back to Lucas's question, you know, we talk a lot about intergenerational leadership, multicultural leadership, and, and we are focused on building culture. Can you talk to us about how you reconcile your own mind multicultural and a unified culture in a complex organization. Even in an American organization, there's a multicultural dynamics to it. Understanding somebody from, you know, especially now when people are working remote, there's somebody from Massachusetts is a definitely cult, different culture from somebody from Alabama. You know, somebody from, you know, California is definitely a different culture from somebody from Montana. So as these organizations are merging multicultures, is you have to understand that you have to embrace the diversity that everybody brings to the fight. Everybody brings to the team. Now, I don't like avocado toast, but my colleague from California loves avocado toast. I'm a bagel and you know, and cream cheese kind of guy because I'm from Jersey. 
you know, so understanding that just because his diet is different, just because he, you know, he thinks differently than me, it makes the team that much more um, productive. You know, we come up with different ideas to be- to better solve solutions and enhance the product that we, we are putting forth. So as a leader, you have to embrace diversity, you know, and, and obviously, you know, of course, and be inclusive. You know, sometimes, you know, d is the new buzzword now. Being diversity inclusive, you know, somebody say, hey, I got a, I got a black male or white female, you know, straight guy, you know, Arab, Muslim, Christian, whatever. You have a diverse team. Yeah, that's all fine and dandy. But the key to that is being inclusive. My wife and I, we teach when we teach this course, we say, hey, diversity is just like that shiny car. You know, you say, hey, I got a diverse team. I got a Hispanic guy. I got a black guy. I got a you know, short guy, female, whatever. That's that's your that's the overall vision of what your team looks like. But what makes that car go is the inclusiveness. Is that that's mm-hmm. the engine that makes it go? You know, it's like I, when I teach, it's like you know the Brooklyn Dodgers when they when they finally had Jackie Robinson on the team. Yeah, they have a now they have a diverse team. But when they when they actually allow him to play, when they actually allow him to get on the field, that's when it was inclusive. You know, so embracing that you know embracing diversity and being inclusive is is essential for any organization to succeed. So. Going off of that, are there things that you as, you know, a leader and a leader developer would encourage teams to do to kind of up that inclusivity? You know, it, it, it all comes down to my, you know, I have a philosophy in the way I teach, you know, happy people are productive people. OK, I'm not telling you give everybody ice cream and give, you know, have sprinkles up and down the hallway and parade. And, but people have to be happy when they come to work. You know, I remember when I came up with this idea, I was sitting in a in one of those Air Force functions, a famous Air Force speaker came up there and gave us, you know, gave a speech. And I was re- it was a riveting speech. And he asked a question, which is truer? Is it, you know, productive people are happier or happy people are productive? So I'm thinking that's a softball. Of course, happy people are more productive. But I was shocked and alarmed by how many of my colleagues, you know, said, no, productive people are happy. Even the guest speaker said, Productive people are happier is more truer than happy people are productive. And I was like, yes, I could see his point. If I'm, if I've completed a task, if I de- completed a degree, if I, yes, that productivity, yeah, I'm happy about it, but I have to go back to the source of, I have to be in the right state of mind. I have to be, you know, I have to be in a comfortable environment for me to actually produce. So that's why I always believe, you know, teaching people, making sure everybody in your organization is happy. You know, that's that's the foundational key, you know, from, you know, people, you know, we would have the Me Too movement or discrimination in the workplace or poor life work balance or work conflicts. If people were just happy at work and I give an example of, you know, I tell my guys, if you wake up in the morning and the way you hit your alarm clock is indicative how (laughs) how you are happy at work. (laughs) If you throw in that alarm clock across the room. You may not be quite as happy at work, but if you, you know, tap it a couple of times, hit the snooze a couple of times. Yeah, I'm looking forward to working with Lucas. I'm looking forward to going there with Jr. That's indicative of how happy somebody is at work. So you are a, an entrepreneur in a couple of different ways. You've got your own gig and you're aligned with another organization that we work a lot with. You mentioned them, the Courageous Leadership Alliance. Talk to us, talk to our leaders about what it's like to start from zero. It's probably the most scariest endeavor that I've come across. <laughs> you know, I've been through all over the United States. I've been through, I've been to war zones in Afghanistan and Iraq and Saudi. But starting my own business is probably the scariest thing that I'd have to do, especially when I'm, when, 
as starting as at this stage of my career, after 30 years of the Air Force, and say, you know what? I know the Air Force well. I'm leaving it. Now I'm going to start my own business of going out on the road, teaching leadership, developing leaders, coaching individuals. That was challenging because you, oh, we, we're not groomed for that. We were, I was not prepared for that. So it was a lot of trial and error, skinning your knee. You know, it's like riding a bike. You know, you're going to fall to the left. You're going to fall to the right. Eventually, you know, you're finally going to get your balancing right. And I was fortunate to team up with Todd Simmons, you know, which kind of helped bounce off ideas off of each other because you... Whenever you try to do a task or whatever you're trying to do for the first time, somebody already done it. You know, you, it's, I highly recommend mm-hmm. for somebody to find a mentor, find a coach. And even if you want to, you know, mm-hmm. create something, somebody already created it. You know, so ask, don't be afraid to take the step up and uh, ask for help. You know, that way it could help you ease your pain of doing whatever endeavor you want to do. So you were fortunate, right? You met Todd Simmons. Um what should people look for in, in that kind of mentor role? Like you're trying to bounce ideas off people and get an idea of their roadmap and everything. You know, when I, when I met Todd, you know, we met Todd, it's funny, we met Todd in a podcast. We knew of each other from the speaking circuit in the Air Force, but we never actually met. So finally, we, we was on a podcast similar together. And then we, we realized we had like, we was like-minded. He loves teaching you know, I love teaching. He loves giving it with a humorous side of it. I enjoy humorous side of it, engagement side of it. So it was easy to find somebody who was compatible. Yeah, I could have found some uh, another mentor who was probably totally different than me, but we wouldn't have connected. I wouldn't have, you know, I, I don't want his style. You know, I don't like his style, you know. So um, finding somebody who's similar to you in your approach and your philosophy is key when you're looking for a mentor. Because, you know, there's a lot of people out there who's probably doing something similar to you. But if you don't have that connection with them, you're not going to really learn from them. You're going you're gonna to sell yourself short. So now that you're a businessman, talk to us about the transformation from military to business. Because when you're in government, you execute your budget to its fullest. When you're in business, you try to maximize your revenue. So talk to us about how you got your head around that. It was funny you said it because now... When I, when I first started, you know, I was thinking, the top could attest to this, when I first had somebody wanted me to speak, they say, hey, Joe, can you come over and speak? I was like, yeah, for, you know, a couple of dollars to have lunch, you know, you know, because mm, I'm thinking mm. that's, that's the going rate. I would love to speak. But speaking you know, with wise counsel, with my friends and colleagues, people who are in the business said, Joseph, if you don't value what you're providing to somebody, they won't value it either. You know, so the hardest part for me was understanding my worth. You know, as a military person, you know, I was never going to be rich in the military, but I, this is what I've done. This is what I've done. So now when I move into the transition to the civilian sector, understanding that the material that I'm bringing, understanding the, the product that I'm, the service I'm providing is valuable to an organization, understanding the worth of it, how it impacts, how it benefits the organization. That was the hardest transition for me to say, what, what do I charge? What do, how much do I worth? Do JR really think if I say, JR, buy me a, a, give me a sandwich, he would like, this guy, when he wants a sandwich, he might not be that good, you know? So understanding your worth was, was the, was the hardest part for me. So going from the military and starting your own business, like JR was saying, do you tend to kind of put the mission first or is it about, you know, like how do you balance that mission versus, you know, you need to eat and survive and have that revenue and profit? 
I love that question. You know, look, great question, Lucas. You know, you know, because my whole philosophy, my whole approach to this leadership and coaching is saying, um, I believe in the people first concept, you know, people first leadership. That's why I said, hey, people, you know, happy people are productive people. You know, my job is to say, this is going to come, you know, but, you know, it's like, just like the Air Force, you know, if we, if we didn't focus on the people firsthand, if I didn't focus on my airmen or my CGOs or my senior CEOs that was, that was under my umbrella, all we would have is a parking lot full of airplanes. You know, it'd be all nice. Oh, what a nice museum we have here. Because it's the people that makes it go. No matter what, no matter what the product is, you know, you know what, you know, Amazon, you know, I've been, I had opportunity to coach some leaders at Amazon. Once they realize, hey, if you don't take care of the people who's, you know, loading those, loading the trucks, putting those packages together or whatever, all you would have is a fleet of trucks. It's a shelves full of products. Taking care of the people, you know, the mission's going to take care of itself. You know, taking care of the people, that's, that's, the, that's the foundation of any success for any organization. Yeah, you want to, you know, focus on the money aspect of it. But trust me, if you don't take care of the people, you, you're going to suffer. I got a two-part question. When is the best time to start thinking about making that transition and planning? And then what did you learn over the last five years that you would want to tell yourself five years ago? I believe once you realize you're going to make the Air Force a career, because everything has a shelf life, you know, it's career, you know, you do 30, 35 years max on, on the average. Once you realize you're going to make it a career, you need to start planning for your transition immediately. You know, get the get the education you need, get the experience mm-hmm. you need. You know, me, I, I knew I want to be, I knew I want to be a, a speaker. I know I want to coach. I want to leadership. You know, so I decided, you know, five, six, seven years out, I started getting my reps in. I started coaching small groups. I started talking to organizations. I started going ahead, you know, volunteering my services to speak at conferences just to get those reps in. You know, you don't want to go out and, you know, day one, day two after you retire and say, you know what? I want JR to pay me X amount of dollars for me to go on stage and brief him. What's your experience? Well, I did it once or twice. No, you have to, you have to practice your craft. You have to own your craft. Even if you want to do something outside of the Air Force or within the Air Force, you can practice it while you're in. Now, with that being said, what I've learned in the past five years is like, you're never, you're never too old to learn. Even when I got out, you know, I realized, hey, I, I got another degree. I went to more certifications. You know, I, I went to, you know, other classes to fine tune my craft because the, as you know, you cannot be stagnant. You cannot be stagnant. Mm-hmm. As long as you have air in your lungs, you can still learn. You can still learn. I'm learning mm-hmm. from Lucas now. Some of these amazing questions he's asking me. I'm like, okay, I'm taking notes. So next time somebody <laughs> asks me that question, I'll be ready for it. You know, so you could never think that you know it all, that you, you've reached your apex, your climax. So that's, that's what I've realized after I retired. So when I was a kid, when I was like 15, my dad, JR, was... He was like, oh, you know, you're going to take your driving test soon. So start paying attention to the signs and start yeah. studying. And I was thinking like, that's a year and a half away. Like, I'm not going to start <laughs> preparing myself now. It, so that idea that like when you're in something and you're having that experience and somebody from the outside tells you like, oh, you need to prepare yourself. How do you kind of like shock that person and say like, no, like this is important. <laughs> it, the great thing about, for example, you know, now let's say Lucas, that when you was learning, when, when JR say, hey, you might want to start learning how to drive. They're like, no, nah, I got time. So then if, if JR would have said, how much time do you think you really have? A year? How long is a year? You got to scale it down to make it a realistic to that individual. You know, because my daughter's 14. She's already talking about driving. And I was like, okay, 
let's start. Let's start. You see the steering wheel. You see the brake. I don't put both foot on the brake and the gas at this. And I use one foot. I use. I'm slowly weaning her. So when the transition comes and she's like, you know what? I'm ready to get behind the wheel. She kind of have a fundamental idea. And that's what was going on with JR. He gave you a fundamental idea. Start planting that seed in your head. Because trust me, when you when you finally reached the, I don't know what the driving age, what age he was when he was driving. You know, when you finally reached 17 or 16 or whatever your driving age was, I guarantee he didn't say, okay, here's the keys. Take the Bentley out. Go start driving. <laughs> no, it, it, it didn't go like that. So it, it's you mentally preparing yourself for that task. If, you know, when you give somebody that goal, when you give them that somebody that stretch goal to, you know, prepare themselves, it's easy for them to accept the challenge when it actually happens. You know, that anxiety, that fear, that, you know, that apprehension to do it. You're like, I'm kind of mentally prepared to overcome it now instead of going cold turkey. Here's the keys to the Bentley, Lucas. Go get them, Tiger. It was, you know, so that's that's the good point. Robinson, I got to point out, it was not a Bentley, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> it was a banged up Matrix. Toyota, Toyota Matrix. Matrix. Toyota Matrix. It went through four flatters. And so hey. by the time Lucas was rocking that thing, it had dents all over it. And <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you want to call it, Bentley, Matrix. It's the, yeah, we know it's Lucas. It might as well be a Bentley to exactly. a 16-year-old. <laughs> yeah, to a, especially to a pedestrian. They're like, that's a Bentley. Yeah. So I know one of the things you differentiate in RBLP is the difference between climate and culture. Could you talk about that nuance for our listeners? When I was in the Air Force, when I was serving, and I, I was, you know, I, th- I thought they were synonymous. Hey, climate, culture, yeah, people want to have a happy climate. They want to have a happy culture. But it's not until I really delve into it that I'll say, you know what, all this time I've been, I've probably been getting it wrong. Well, when I, I teach this, I, I give an analogy as a tree. Now, when you have a tree, you know, you have the branches. That's, that's, the, that's the climate. You know, I could say, you know what? It's, it changes over time easily. The wind blows, it changes or whatever. You know, Lucas, mm-hmm. I, Lucas could be my employee. I'd be like, Lucas, like, you know what? I hate working with Rob. You know, JR, I don't get to drive the Bentley. He don't do, <laughs> let me do this. He don't let me do that. You know, I hate just coming here every day. So one day, JR comes in and say, hey, Lucas, hey, this weekend, since you did an outstanding job, here's the keys to the Bentley. Here's my parking spot. Here's this. Lucas, what he's going to say is like, wow, this is a great place to work. JR made me get, let me drive the Bentley. I had an extended lunch. I did this. I did that. That's how quick climate changes. That's how quick climate mm-hmm. changes. You know, compared to culture, culture is so deep rooted. You know, it's like saying, you know, the culture in the, in the, in the flatter household is, hey, you know what? Nobody's driving the Bentley till, you know, till they're 21. That's so deep rooted. You know, nobody could change that idea. That's embedded into the way the flatter organization, hypothetically, of course. I know, I know you let them drive when they was 18. It's <laughs> deep rooted in the way that the organization exists. It's what they firmly believe in. So it takes, it's, it's hard to change over time, you know, the culture of an organization. We joke about the culture of the Air Force and the Army. People say, hey, the Air Force, they mm-hmm. got it made. They do whatever they want. The Army's so rigid. They don't have no money. And the Marine Corps is this or the Navy is that. But that's deep rooted from the top down concept. You know, so that's the difference where I try to tell people, hey, understand the culture of your organization and then understand the climate, how you could impact the mm-hmm. climate. Climate is, so, climate is a bottom up concept. It's how mm-hmm. the frontline supervisor, the junior members view the organization. You know, me, let's say I'm an intern working for J.R. Flatter. I assume I have a perception on how J.R. thinks. I don't know J.R. He don't, he don't take me out to lunch, you know, in, in un 
opposite of that is the, is the culture, which is a top-down concept. It's how JR, the president of the organization, the, the president of the company, this is how he tolerates how everything's going to happen within his organization. So that's why it's deep-rooted. That's the difference I explain to people when I talk about climate and culture. Yeah, you reminded me of a story from our house. I don't know if Lucas remembers this. We ate dinner together every night, and we really had three objectives in the house, family, education, and uh, creating some financial freedom. And so one night over dinner, we were talking about a distant cousin who was not going to go to college. And my daughter looks at me, she was probably 12 years old, and goes, but daddy, isn't it illegal not to go to college? <laughs> so we, the message yeah. was a little stronger than I might have thought. <laughs> but you know, it goes right back to your idea of what culture is. That was the culture of the house. That's the culture of the house. The fact that everybody's going to go to college. You know, how, mm. you know, you say you're not going to college. Oh, you tr- are you trying to change the culture all of a sudden? No, <laughs> no, no. Unless JR say, you know what? Okay, guys, it's, it's your, it's okay if you guys don't go to college or not. So people are like, really? Are you sure we're really going to do that? You know, so that's, that's the amazing thing about culture and climate. So talking about kind of like the external culture, nowadays people are kind of like being careful what they're saying. Obviously on the internet, on Twitter or something, you can get in trouble for saying the wrong thing. Is there any way like an organization can counteract those kinds of ideas? Like, you know, it's a safe space. You can talk about those things here and we're not going to blow you up. It's funny you say that, you know, it's relative to me. It's relative. I could talk about Lucas. I said, Lucas, hey, you know, X, Y, Z about Lucas. Yeah, yeah. Privately or whatever. But if Lucas say, hey, I appreciate if you don't mention this about me. I appreciate if you don't talk about the way I crashed the car the first time I drove it. You know, but if I probably say, hey, Lucas always crashing cars, he always do this or whatever. He like it's it's that's why I think it's relative. You have to understand your people. First of first and foremost, understanding what people, you know, don't assume that it's okay to talk about Lucas crashing the car. Don't be okay is talking about, you know, transgenders or straight or gay or whatever, because it's, it, it's not the norm. It's not the norm. So you really have to be conscious of what being tuned to what the, what your people are, what they, what they feel. And the only way you can do that is engaging with them, conversating with them, talking to them, knowing your people is, is key to any organization. So that way you don't get that cancel culture, you know, understand mm. and say, hey, when you put something out, Hey, let me, hey, Lucas, what do you think about, I'm, I'm going to say this. What do you think about that? Oh, Rob, I don't think you should say that, that, because I'm offended or whatever. But people don't ask. They assume. When I teach, I say, hey, as a leader, you have to accept that you may have broccoli in your tea. You know, what do you mean by that, Rob? You know, you know, everybody know Jr. he has broccoli in his teeth, but nobody want to tell him. Nobody mm-hmm. want to tell him, say, hey, Jr. you have a habit of doing this. You have, you tend to offend me when you say this. You tend to do this or whatever. Because nobody wants to, you know, get mad at Jr. the president of the company or the, or the leader of the organization. As a leader, you have to accept, hey, I may have broccoli in my teeth. Hey, Lucas, what am I doing? Lucas, do I have broccoli in my teeth? How do I look? How am I being perceived? How am I being viewed? You know, that self-reflectiveness will help you avoid that being canceled in a culture. That's Rob Joseph's take. You seem like a really extroverted person. If I'm not, can I still be a good leader? Definitely. You know, people think the ideal leader is someone who's going around the office, shaking hands, talking about the sports. Hey, how's your night? How's it going? How's it going? You know, whatever. And being an extrovert, engaging with people. But there's amazing leaders who are introverts, 
who identified that is my, I am not an extrovert. First of all, you have to know yourself to lead yourself. That's, that's fundamental. You know, once you realize that, hey, you know, I'm not an extrovert, I'm an introvert. Maybe I could rely, hey, Lucas, could you find out what the team wants? You know, because, you know, I kind of, and I, I don't feel like, I don't, I'm not comfortable doing that. I know you like going out there, talking to everybody. Please go, let me know. So that way I could find a better way to support the team or the organization or whatever. But you have to admit your shortcomings, first of all. You know, I'm not, and, I, and I hate to use shortcomings as, a, as describing an introvert, but you know what you need. Some, some of your balance to lead an organization. Sometimes I need to be introverted, use my introverted skills to you know, sit down and analyze and read some papers. But I'm like, you know, I'm like Tigger. I'm always jumping around, going around the <laughs> office, stuff like that. But I, I know that's not my strength. So you have to find somebody to help balance you, to complement your shortcomings, your strengths, your weaknesses. And as a leader, you're not perfect. And that's the first thing as a leader, I tell leaders, you're not perfect. You know, identifying that broccoli tea, just like I previously mentioned, or understanding that, hey, there's some things I need to work on. There's some things I'm not, you know, I'm not strong at. And as a leader, when I was leading an organization, I, empathy was my weakness. You know, I identified empathy mm. was my weakness, but I had to make the deliberate effort to, you know, to work on my empathy. Because as you can tell, Jr. and Lucas, I'm always a positive guy. I always, you know, you know, lucky. You know, let's tell a joke. Let's tell, tell a quick remark just to keep the morale up. That's me. So, but as a leader, you're going to be sometimes faced with some tough challenges or some, some not so, you know, some heartbreaking news. I remember an individual telling me, say, hey, my mom is sick or I need to take leave because my mm -hmm. grandmother got cancer. That's not the time for me to tell a joke. That's not the time for me to say, oh, you know, so I had to be deliberate and work on my empathy. If anybody knows me, I'm not, I love animals except for cats. You know, I'm not a big <laughs> cat guy because I think it's, I think it's their money pit. You know, you're buying litter for them. You're buying food for them. They don't show you no affection. They don't love you. They, yeah, so I'm not a big cat guy. As a leader in an organization, I had an individual come to me and say, hey, hey, Rob, you know what? I'm having a real bad day. Can I take the rest of the day off? And I, and I was showing that person concerned. I was like, what's going on? How can I help you? She's like, my cat died. Can I take the rest of the day off? So inside, I'm like, I don't care about your cat. This is my inside <laughs> thought. Why? Why you want to take a day? This, that should be a blessing for you, you know? But understanding <laughs> that, you know what? How about if it was a dog? How about, I'm a big dog lover. Mm -hmm. you know, how about if it was one of my dogs? You know, why, mm -hmm. how would I feel? You know what I'm saying? So I had to grit my teeth and say, yes, you could take that day off, <laughs> you know? But I had to understand mm -hmm. that I had to work on my empathy. <laughs> you know, as a leader, you got to know some character traits that you're not strong at and be deliberate on working on it. Because now this person loved me. This person, hey, Rob Joseph, you know, he respect the fact that, you know, I'm a cat lover, even though I know he's not, you know. So working on some, some character traits like empathy or humility or moral courage or honesty is critical for somebody, a leader to um, succeed. For the record, Lucas, I really don't hate cats that bad, but I really don't. I just don't want one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah, we're we're dog people too. <laughs> but um, so say like you're that person that's you know introverted and you're not going around the office. How do you kind of get yourself to like realize here's here's the gaps and here's what I need to work on? Like that reflection and self awareness. How do you get to that step? The easiest way to do it is just ask. Ask somebody. Hey, Lucas, how did, how am I viewed? Uh, how do I, how do I view like this? How am I, that's self-reflection. You know, you got to have a, a confident, a confidant that you could ask the question to. You know, I had a, I had a supervisor, not supervisor, a boss one time, a colonel, and he asked me, he said, hey, chief, you know, how am I doing? How am I being viewed? 
you know, the first time he asked me that, I was like, you are a colonel in the United States Air Force. Why do you care how, how you are being viewed, you know? But he wanted to do a great job. He wanted to be a great leader, you know what I'm saying? So if you want to be a great leader, if you want to be a great job, if you want to be respected, you may have to ask somebody. You know, you may have to have the courage, that moral courage to ask somebody, say, how am I doing? How am I being viewed? Am I doing a good job? You know, so it takes that inner strength to actually do that for you to succeed as a leader. One of the requirements of being a distinguished guest on our podcast is you have to give up one of your secrets. So you've been successful across multiple domains, multiple generations, multiple ethnicities. What's your secret to success? A secret to success. You know, I use an analogy of, of Ikea. There's a little small furniture store that some of you may be familiar with. You know, it's called Ikea. <laughs> one of my wife's favorite stores, sadly. But you go there and you buy a chair or a table and it comes in 40, 50 boxes. You're like, why in the world did it just put this thing together, make it a whole lot easier for everybody? So when you come home, you open all these boxes, parts all over the place, and they give you the weirdest tools. You know, you're like, what am I going <laughs> to use this tool for? You know, you put this, you finally use all these pieces. You finally, eventually, you put this chair, this desk, this table, or whatever you got from Ikea together, and you got these weird, you know, Swedish little tools on the side. I tell leaders, do not throw those tools away from life experiences, from leadership courses, from, you know, talking to somebody, you gain all these tools. You gain all these tools. Yeah, you may not need it eventually. You may not need it now. You know, the secret is knowing that, hey, you have those tools in the shed somewhere. You have those tools in your toolbox. So just in case that chair gets squeaked, start wobbling a little bit, that table start leading to the left, that individual you're coaching, you know, has some issues, that person you're trying to lead, you know, is going through some problems, you may have to go back to the IKEA tool, as weird as it may seem at the time when you purchased it, as weird as it's time when you acquired it, you may have to pull that tool up just to tighten it up. Tighten up that chair, tighten up that table, coach mm. that individual, guide that individual. You may not see it immediately, but knowing that that tool is there for you is critical. So I'm really into like movies, games, pop culture, and so I always try to, when I'm watching something, I'll, I'll try to come out with a nugget. Like, for example, we were just watching Benjamin Button with, you know, Brad Pitt. <laughs> At the end of that movie, he gives this speech and he's saying, you know, life, it doesn't have rules. Like you figure out what you want and you go for it and you can't be afraid to start over if you need to. And so I, yeah, I walked away and resonated with that. Anything you've watched or read, or even if it's just, you know, a figure you look up to in culture. I have a partner of mine in Giant. I work with a company called Giant as well. I work with Mark Tilsher, who's the, we call him the military Sherpa. He has this thing where we put a slide up, we call, we say it's become, build, lead. You got to become, build, lead. You know, you got to become a leader. People want to follow. You got to become a leader. People want to work with. And next thing was build. You want to build an organization, you know, want to build leaders that people want to work for. And last but not least, you got to lead an organization that everybody wants to work in. I want to work on your team, JR. Man, you leading a great team cannot be part of that. You know what I'm saying? So we believe in you know, become, build, lead is critical you know, for success of an individual. And I always you know, end my conversations. I always end my speeches. And I tell people, hey, always try to become, build, lead. 
in, in any, any capacity. So that's really the takeaway I want to leave with you, Lucas. My last question would be going back to culture. In many ways, culture is the perception of those who work there, the, the world's perception. And in, in, the, in many ways, perception is reality. And we also talk about the behaviors that lead to those perceptions. So the behaviors of you as a leader, your behavior to the outside world, how can we change those perceptions and how can we change our behaviors so that the story the world's telling and the story that we're telling ourselves is come build lead? Great question, JR. You know, the way we change our perceptions, you know, just like I explained before, first of all, you got to start with yourself first. You got to look inward and say, hey, maybe my view on certain things is kind of skewed. Let me talk to Lucas. Let me get JR's point of view. Let me get Sam's point of view. Because your perception is built over time from your experience, from your knowledge, your education, or whatever. You could always expand your perception on something by educating yourself more. You know, that's what I strongly believe. You could don't don't get stagnant and thinking, hey, my way is the right way. This is the best way. You know, from life experiences, from you know, Lucas's experiences, from JR's experience, from Todd's experiences, they could help, you know, enhance your perception. Or, or, or sway left or right. So, you know, you have to be able to open yourself up and understand that, hey, you need to learn more. That's one way of, of changing your perception. And the way the perceptions, I know your second part of your question was saying that, uh, how does the, correct me if I'm wrong, JR, how, you, how can you change the perception in an organization? What's, what was the question, JR? How do you change the behaviors that lead to those perceptions? Yeah, the great, yeah, continue on. How do you change the, the behaviors that lead to the perception is, is asking, saying, hey, Maybe the way I've been viewing things, maybe the way I've been approaching, maybe the way I've I've been speaking the past way, my views, you know, I'm not getting the desired result I want from Lucas. You know, I'm not getting, you know, the funny thing is we talk about, you know, I talk about about the great resignation. You know, everybody knows the great resignation. In one month alone, you know, it's September 2021, you know, 4 million individuals left their job. That's an alarming rate. That's an alarming mm-hmm. rate. That's like the whole city of Los Angeles walking out. So, you know what? I'm done working. Yeah. You know, people leave their jobs for various reasons. The most common reason, yeah, I want I want I want more money. I want to raise, so I'm leaving my job. But 55% of that is people-related factors. You know, say, hey, I don't like the way JR talks to me. Lucas is mean to me. You know, the personality conflict I have at the workplace, whatever's going on is people-related. So understanding that especially now when we a lot of majority of Americans have been working virtually during the pandemic, people realize, you know what? I don't have to put up with JR in the office no more. I don't have to take that abuse from Lucas no more. I don't have to do that. I've been working function. I've been, I have the opportunity to spend more time with my family. I have the opportunity to see my kids in the morning. I don't have to get dressed. All I got is to put in a, a polo shirt and get on a computer. You know, this is, why do I got to tolerate the, the, that culture, that bad culture that I work in? Why do I got to operate in that climate that I'm going into the office all day long? I quit. I quit. (laughs) So understanding that people, you know, changing the way people think, you know, going back to my foundational thought of happy people are productive people, making sure, finding ways to ensure your people are happy at work, ensuring people are productive, you know, are productive about work, giving them the resource, giving them the safe environment, creating that climate, creating that culture that people want to work in who are not throwing that alarm clock across the room when the alarm clock rings. Mm. That's one key way of finding changing your perception in the workplace. That's the benefit of doing it, JR. 
Great. Thanks so much. It is my pleasure. And as is our tradition, Lucas gets the last question. Okay. So we have um, women on the show a lot and we tend to talk about, you know, being a mother with those guests. And, and so I want to pull it over to, to you being a father. Do you, do you have any lessons that you've learned about leadership through that experience or vice versa through your Air Force experience being a father? We're blessed to have three kids. I have a 29, 28, and a 14, 14 year old in the house. The 14 is the is our female, our daughter. You know, my wife and I are highly high extroverts. You know, we like to mm. engage with people. My daughter is the complete opposite. That is my mm-hmm. biggest critic. As I practice my speeches, you know, in front of her, she's the first heckler. She's like, boo, that's not funny. That's that. You know, so she's my biggest critic. So, you know, as a father, understanding that, hey, if I could, if I could please, if I can get one laugh out of her, I'm doing a good job that week. Understanding that my older kids are totally different, you know. So as a leader, as a father, understanding each one of your employees, each one of your colleagues are totally different. You cannot, you know, there's no cookie cutter way of raising you know, my, my kids, each one is different. I'm more, each one is motivated differently. So understanding that as a, as a father, I apply it at work as well. The same thing I motivate Lucas with, it's not the same thing I motivate John with. It's not the same thing that I motivate Sally with. Going back to our foundational stuff of knowing your people, engaging your people is critical. You know, so communicating with them, that's what I learned from being a father. You know, you know, we always talk about the golden rule and the platinum rule, you know, the golden rule, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated. But, you know, we I live by the platinum rule, treat people the way they want to be treated. Because me being a diehard Giants fan, you know, New York Giants, Yankees, you know, if you was to say, hey, Rob, you did a good job. Here's some tickets to the Giants game. I'd be like, yes, Lucas loves me, you know. But if I was just on the other hand, if I if I've treated you the way I want to be treated and I give Lucas tickets to the Giants game, he's like, what in the world I'm going to do? I can't even scout these things, you know? So understanding what motivates Lucas, what motivates JR, what motivated my daughter, what motivated my son is critical in getting the best out of them. Right. I thought you were going to get us canceled by talking trash about a team or something. Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) (laughs) So what have I learned? Don't send you to a Jets game with a cat. <laughs> exactly. Don't send me a jet ski with a cat. It was a, sh- it was a short trip. <laughs> That's an image that I'll have all day now. <laughs> Rob with a cat and his arm on his way. Exactly. Just jet game. Go Jets. C A T S cats. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or a review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.